You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You're listening to the late, great Thurl Ravenscroft, the singing voice behind this 1966 animated Christmas classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which means it's that time of year again. We are winding things down here at the Cyberwire to get ready for the holidays. All the interns in the Sanctum are about ready to put their tools away and start decorating the Sanctorum in a jolly fashion. Hey, 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 Kevin, what are you doing? Get out of the fridge. It's not time to break out the eggnog yet. Are you finished with today's script? <clears throat> Sorry. You still have to watch him like a hog. As I was saying, since this is the last CSO Perspective show for the year, I have a special holiday gift for you all. Andy Greenberg, the senior writer for Wired Magazine and one of my all-time favorite authors, has just published his latest book, and we are one of the first people who get to talk to him about it. So... Hold on to your butts. This is going to be great. My name is Rick Howard, and I'm broadcasting from the CyberWire's secret Sanctum Sanctorum Studios, located underwater somewhere along the Patapsco River near Baltimore Harbor, Maryland, in the good old U.S. of A. And you're listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Andy Greenberg is a longtime tech and security writer and has been working for Wired Magazine since 2014. He's also an author of three books, one, a New York Times bestseller in 2012 called This Machine Kills Secrets about WikiLeaks, a second in 2019, a cybersecurity canon Hall of Fame book called Sandworm about the Russian cyber attacks against Ukraine from 2014 to 2017, and now a third called Tracers in the Dark, the global hunt for the crime lords of cryptocurrency that just came out this year. Andy, thanks for coming on to talk about your book. Thank you so much for that, Rick. I really appreciate, uh, well, I appreciated your review of Sandworm, and I'm really glad to be talking about this new one. So I want to congratulate you on this book. I just finished reading it, and I have to say, it's the best cybercrime book I've read in over five years, easily. I would place it on the same shelf with two other Cybersecurity Ken Hall of Fame books on cybercrime, Future Crimes by Mark Goodman and Kingpin by Kevin Paulson back in 2011. 
Can you give the audience a summary of what the book is about? Sure. It's about essentially the advent of cryptocurrency tracing as a law enforcement investigative technique. I mean, um, people forget this, but a little over a decade ago, when Bitcoin kind of first came into the limelight, people believed, including even, I would say to some degree, Satoshi Nakamoto himself or herself believed that Bitcoin could be used anonymously, that it might be this kind of digital cash for the internet that you could put like a briefcase full of unmarked bills into a package and send it across the internet, essentially, without revealing your identity. As Andy said, we're not sure who Satoshi Nakamoto is. He or she published the seminal paper called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system in October of 2008. Essentially, the beginning of Bitcoin as arguably the first viable cryptocurrency. Nakamoto has never appeared in public, and the last time anybody has heard from him or her was in April 2011 via email. As far as anybody can tell, Satoshi Nakamoto is a pseudonym. It may represent one person or a collective. In 2014, Newsweek wrongly pointed to a 64-year-old Japanese-American named Dorian Prentice. Researchers from Aston University attribute the author to be Nick Zabo based on writing style comparisons, something called stylometry, from the original paper and Zabo's public writing. Nakamoto gives credit to Zabo in the original paper for a precursor cryptocurrency called Bitgold. Whomever the Nakamoto Collective is, they're worth about $8.8 billion because of all the Bitcoins in their possession. It seems so crazy to me that a system that rides on the blockchain was supposed to be transparent, that we would think that it would be anonymous. How do we rectify those two ends of the uh, equation there? Well, we can get into like how cryptocurrency tracing works, which is such a, a big part of the techniques used by the main players in this book. But, but back in 2011, when I wrote the first print magazine piece about Bitcoin, you know, I'm guilty of this too. I believed that Bitcoin could be used anonymously because, yes, there was this thing called the blockchain that recorded every single Bitcoin transaction. But those transactions, on as they were listed there, only seemed to be between Bitcoin addresses, these like long, inscrutable strings of characters. And there were no identifying details on the blockchain. And if you couldn't figure out who somebody's addresses were, then how were you going to follow their money or identify their transactions? And that seemed to, to have convinced even Satoshi Nakamoto wrote in the first email to a cryptography mailing list introducing Bitcoin that participants can be anonymous, in quotes. Even Satoshi believed in this potential anonymity or untraceability of Bitcoin. And that soon led to its use on the dark web on sites like the Silk Road. I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011 from Gavin Andreessen, one of the first Bitcoin uh, programmers. And um, he had given a talk about it where he described it as a kind of cypherpunk invention. And the cypherpunks were this, this movement of like privacy advocates who I was super interested in, who believed that you could use um, encryption technologies to take power away from governments and corporations and give it to individuals. And um, Gavin described Satoshi as having kind of created this cyberpunk holy grail, as he put it, like truly anonymous, untra- potentially untraceable digital cash for the internet. That's what Bitcoin was perceived to be back then. And so I, I interviewed Gavin and wrote um, a piece 
for Forbes magazine about Bitcoin back then. I even, but I did even like try to get comment from Satoshi, who back then had not yet disappeared. And Gavin even relayed a message to Satoshi for me. And I, you know, I included in the story like Satoshi Nakamoto declined to comment, which I think is maybe like the only <laughs> media story that ever has that, had that phrase in it because he actually did decline um, or she or they or whoever Satoshi is. Because we don't know, knows. right? But, Nobody knows who Satoshi is, right? That's the whole, that's the whole game yeah. here. But this is like the funny thing about it. Satoshi wrote, participants can be anonymous about Bitcoin. And it has since turned out that I, that, you know, may be true in a sense, but only in the sense that Satoshi himself has remained anonymous and almost no one else ever has been able to use Bitcoin anonymously, it turns out. I mean, the the story of this book is about how over the last decades, it slowly became apparent that, I mean, as is now clear, as is now clear to you from what you just said about the blockchain, that Bitcoin is incredibly traceable, that it is actually far more traceable once you know kind of like how to crack the, the code of the blockchain's Bitcoin addresses, uh, then even the traditional financial system and a small group of detectives who are who are really the main characters of this book figured this out. I mean, first in the, in the sort of research world, then the tech industry, then law enforcement. And this group kind of went on a just a spree of one massive cyber criminal takedown after another, uh, each one bigger than the last. Uh, that, you know, kind of still is persisting to this day. I guess that's the takeaway from the book. If there's any doubt in anybody's mind today, I think we can wipe that away. That cryptocurrencies, specifically Bitcoin, but others for sure, we can use the same techniques. Not all of them, I would say, but, you know, almost all of them, except the ones that are specifically designed. I think you're about to get to this, that, you know, to, to foil that kind of tracing, like, you know, Monero and Zcash or others that are, you call them privacy coins. But everyone that's sort of based on a on a blockchain, like the, the sort of traditional blockchain, the way that Bitcoin is, yeah, they're like, they turned out to be not only traceable, but like, given the way that they were perceived originally, almost like a trap for people seeking financial privacy and for all kinds of criminals. So the technique's called Chainalysis, is that right? Well, Chainalysis is the company. Chainalysis is this, sorry to interrupt, but Chainalysis is this, the, the tech startup that has become kind of the world's leading purveyor of cryptocurrency tracing tools and services. They're now, um, you know, they, the Chainalysis is like origin story is a big part of this book, the way that they figured out how to trace cryptocurrency. And then they and now a whole industry of companies like them are playing this cat and mouse game with all of, all of these cryptocurrency users and criminals trying to stay a step ahead. So I'm glad you clarified that because I was thinking chain analysis was the name of the technique they were using, but you're right. That's the name of the company that developed a lot of these algorithms. Is there a different name for the technique that they are using or is it just a bunch of different techniques that this company uses? Well, it's, I mean, I think that the techniques as a whole are called blockchain analysis, which is where I guess the name chain analysis comes from mm -hmm. uh, the, the company. But yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the chain analysis adopted like a whole bunch of techniques and built them into a kind of slick piece of software called Reactor that became this very powerful tool in the hands of law enforcement. But those techniques really came from, um, or at least originally, the sort of most kind of core techniques that Chainalysis built a company out of um, came from the research world and specifically from the work of one University of California, San Diego researcher at the time, Sarah Mickeljohn 
who in 2013, you know, a couple of years after um, the appearance of the Silk Road, and you know, when I first discovered Bitcoin, she and her co-authors published a paper that laid out these really surprisingly effective techniques to trace Bitcoin, which was, and of course, really to trace cryptocurrencies of other kinds as well, but Bitcoin was the big one back then. For those that can't remember, the Silk Road was the name for an online black market founded in 2011 by Ross Ulbrich, hacker name The Dread Pirate Roberts, a nod to the famous movie The Princess Bride. His site facilitated the transactions of all kinds of illicit material, mostly drugs, and were hidden by the encrypted Onion Router Network, or the Tor Network, where network transactions were scrambled and obscured by the underlying Tor technology. The FBI shut it down in 2013, and Obrig was convicted of seven charges related to Silk Road in the U.S. federal court in Manhattan and was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. He's currently starting his 10th year in prison. After the break, Andy and I will talk about how a grad student kicked off this entire crypto analysis research area. Come right back. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. I love the way you described how she started because she was like a grad student, right? And just started buying things with Bitcoin just to see if she could track the transactions as they moved around the web. Can you describe what she was doing there? Yeah, well, I mean, Sarah had a few like really clever ideas about ways to to like essentially to break through that thin barrier between someone's Bitcoin addresses and their real identity. That seemed kind of, you know, impermeable to me when I first wrote about Bitcoin, but she 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 really did figure out how to connect people to their Bitcoin addresses. And one way, as you're getting at, is that she kind of became almost like an undercover cop herself. Like <laughs> she just started interacting with almost every Bitcoin service there was, just like moving Bitcoins, her own Bitcoins into and out of cryptocurrency exchanges and gambling sites and and even the Silk Road, this dark web drug market for, you know, that offered every kind of hard drug imaginable, she just moved Bitcoins into and out of the market without ever buying anything, she says, at least to me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that allowed her to, she could see her transactions and then she could see on the blockchain, she could match up those 
the blockchain transactions with the ones that she knew she had made and therefore started to identify some of the addresses of these services. But then the real trick was that she also com combined that with the ability to create clusters of addresses. Like the blockchain was and is, still is just this vast collection of millions upon millions of distinct addresses. But, but she started to figure out that sometimes dozens or thousands of addresses all belonged to one person or service. And there were, she had like a few tricks to do that. But she started to see that like if she could identify just one Silk Road address, she could also tie it um, through some of these clever kind of almost logic games to a whole cluster of like actually eventually thousands of Silk Road addresses. And she therefore could see other people sending money into the Silk Road too. And she also figured out that if you could then follow that money, you know, out of the Silk Road um, to a cryptocurrency exchange or into it, the, the Silk Road from a cryptocurrency exchange, then you, if you were a law enforcement agent, could send a subpoena to that exchange, which actually often legally was required to have identifying information on users and start to truly, you know, unmask people and, and identify their criminal activities with cryptocurrency. That turned out to be incredibly powerful. And that's kind of where the story forks a little bit, right? Uh, you follow a couple of different lines in the book, which I loved. The IRS has a big play in this and the company we were talking about, Chain Analysis. So let's talk about the IRS piece of this. How did those guys get involved in this kind of analysis in the criminal world? Well, it all starts with this one guy who is really, if anybody is, the, the main character of the book. It's it's this guy, Tigran Gambarian. Mm -hmm. And he was a, you know, he he worked with an IRS, but within the IRS Criminal Investigations Division, which is this interesting part of IRS. Which it's I didn't like, even know they had until I read your book. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah, I sort of barely heard of them myself until I got into this story. But they are this like little known, you know, law enforcement agency, their own kind of little um, FBI or something within the IRS. They are forensic accountants, but they also, you know, carry guns and make arrests and get, I think they would say, very little respect from the FBI's and <laughs> DEA's of the world who, you know, don't really take them seriously. But it kind of figures that this underdog, you know, law enforcement agency within IRS was the one that began to crack this code. And it was really Tigran who, in 2014, after the Silk Road takedown, he was based in Oakland at the time, and the Silk Road, it turned out, had been run by this 29-year-old Texan living in San Francisco, just across the bay. Ross Ulbricht, who ran and created the Silk Road, was arrested in San Francisco. Um, Tigran's superiors in IRS criminal investigations were kind of like, why didn't we get this guy? I mean, he's, he was right there under our nose. Tigran had always looked at, at Bitcoin um, from the beginning and thought, like you just said, like there's a whole blockchain here, a ledger of every transaction. This has got to be traceable. I mean, he was, he had spent years auditing people's tax returns. He was a forensic accountant and he, I think, has kind of accountant brain, saw that potential. So he started sort of looking closer at the Silk Road investigation after the Silk Road was taken down. And to be clear, the Silk Road was taken down not through cryptocurrency right. tracing, but through some, you know, kind of sloppy mistakes made by Ross Ulbricht. Mm -hmm. And Tigreen got a tip from a cryptocurrency exchange that this guy, Carl Mark Force, was cashing out hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoins of unknown origin through this exchange. 
And Tigran started to look into that case and found that Karl Mark Forrest was a DEA agent who had been working on the Silk Road investigation and then uh, essentially sat down at home like after hours. Nobody thought this was possible, but he just kind of thought differently and sat down and, and kind of hand traced on the blockchain Karl Mark Forrest's Bitcoin transactions to show that his, you know, this kind of mysterious fortune he'd amassed had come from the Silk Road, that the Dread Pirate Roberts, the creator of the Silk Road, who went under that name, had been sending payments to Karl Mark Force in exchange for inside law enforcement information that Karl Mark Force had been a mole inside the DEA for the Silk Road, essentially, and had tried to extort the Silk Road for money and, and you know, uh, just incredibly corrupt behavior. So the story twists, which is fantastic that there's a corrupt cop at the end of this that the IRS guy is tracking just by doing manual analysis of the blockchain, right? He totally. wasn't, wasn't I mean, was, writing yeah. programs to do it, right? He was doing it manually. Right. I mean, this was in the days before chain analysis. Yeah. And T. Graham was just really doing this on his own. But that's, but this was not the end. This was the end of the Silk Road story, but really just the beginning of the story of the book because that was when T. Graham realized that Bitcoin can be traced. And he had just proved somebody's guilt through cryptocurrency tracing for the first time in the history of law enforcement. And not only that, but he soon followed another thread of like a kind of loose thread of like missing Bitcoins from the Silk Road to show that they had been taken by another corrupt agent, a secret service agent who worked in the same Baltimore office as Karl Mark Force. That was Sean Bridges. And the two of them were both corrupt agents, both investigating the Silk Road and simultaneously trying to enrich themselves from that investigation. Anyway, they just taking whatever dirty Bitcoins they could. And both of them had thought that those Bitcoins would be untraceable, so they could never be caught. And T. Green caught them both, and they both went to prison. You know, if I was writing a novel about this, the, the editor would say, this is too incredible. No one would believe this, all right? So uh, it's unbelievable this happened in real life, <laughs> right? So I knew a bit about that story, but the details of it, and then some of the cases that followed, they truly were just like, kind of like, truth is more dramatic than fiction kind of true crime stories. But I don't want to like uh, get ahead of myself. <laughs> so uh, I'm a little foggy at this point, but somehow the IRS agent becomes friends with the chain analysis CEO, right? And, and they begin to share information with each other. So Michael Groninger at this point was this Danish entrepreneur. He is now the CEO and co-founder of Chainalysis, which has grown into an $8.6 billion startup. Yes. But back then was just his little idea. And he sort of picked up Sarah Mickeljohn's tricks from her paper and wrote, you know, he was not a researcher. He was a real um, entrepreneur and coder and built a very slick and fast like tool that implemented those ideas and others that he came up with. And then he sort of just by chance met Tigran Gumbarian, the IRS agent in San Francisco, helped him out with that Sean Bridges tracing case. And then they kind of together went on to take on this this other massive mystery in the cryptocurrency economy, which in 2014 was the fact that Mt. Gox, the big, you know, the first cryptocurrency exchange, had been just catastrophically hacked and uh, emptied out essentially by hackers who had stolen half a billion dollars worth of bitcoins from it. And Michael Groninger, just in, in his kind of first days uh, after founding Chainalysis, this company took took the Mt. Gox bankruptcy trustees on as a pro bono customer, basically, and just like decided that he was going to solve this case. And he and, and Tigran essentially did just that. 
Tigran was actually looking into this cryptocurrency exchange called BTCE, mm -hmm. which, if you remember, was like this very mysterious and shady exchange at the time. And nobody could figure out where it was located. Some people thought it was like Singapore or Hong Kong, or some people had pointed towards other countries. It was just this like black hole. Nobody could figure out who ran it. And it was one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges at the time. And also, Anybody could use chain analysis or cryptocurrency tracing tools uh, to see that tons of dirty money was flowing into it from ransomware, which was just starting to be a thing back then, and dark web drug markets like that had replaced the Silk Road. And so Tigran started to look into BTCE, and the amazing thing turned out to be that BTCE had been founded by this Russian guy named Alexander Vinnik, who... Michael Groniger, through cryptocurrency tracing, proved was part of the group of hackers stealing the Mt. Gox fortune. This guy, Alexander Vinnik, allegedly at least, had amassed so many Bitcoins from that heist that he had created his own exchange, BTCE, just for the purposes of laundering this fortune. And then BTCE, you know, as this kind of criminal exchange, became the go-to place to launder all sorts of criminal cryptocurrency. And so they essentially both solved the Mt. Gox mystery and took down BTCE. That takedown of BTCE and the, the, the solving of the Mt. Gox mystery is really like the beginning of a new era because that was Chainalysis's first big case proved that cryptocurrency tracing could be used to solve like some of the biggest cyber crimes happening on the internet, period. And it's kind of a beginning of this golden age of cryptocurrency tracing. You know, the rest of the book, I tell these bigger and bigger stories of law enforcement wins, the, the, the takedown of, of Alpha Bay, this dark web drug market that's 10 times the size of the Silk Road, and the welcome to video child sexual abuse video dark web market. All of that was taken out through cryptocurrency tracing. I love the way you ended the book. I think it's a perfect bookend. And I thought it was going to go one way, and it didn't go that way. But you end up with Sarah Micklejohn again. And I really thought that she was going to end up being the number two at Chain Analysis. But she went a different way, which I thought yeah, was fantastic. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to just leave readers with the impression that financial surveillance is 100% good or, you know, that it's not an ethically complicated thing. It, it is, you know. And... Luckily for me, like Sarah Micklejohn, who begins this whole story with the techniques that she invented, she also serves as kind of a conscience of the story because she was always very ambivalent about the fact that what she had created had been adopted by um, law enforcement and, and used in these incredibly powerful surveillance operations. And as you say, like, I hope it's not a spoiler to say that, you know, she had in the, one of the final scenes of the book. She was offered a job by Michael Groninger, um, who, who had created chain analysis and, um, what it was very quickly growing. And if, if she had taken that job, you know, she probably She'd be, would yeah. have made a fortune. Rich yeah, beyond her wildest dreams. Yeah. But she did not take that job and she turned him down. Um, and she told me that it was, uh, because she just didn't want to be as, as, as she put it, a, cyber narc for a living you know she that was what her her academic advisor had once uh joked about it her about called her as a joke and uh, when she was tracing cryptocurrency and she just she her her you know bitcoin tracing work 
she saw it as a kind of public service announcement, like a sort of um, a warning about the fact that Bitcoin was anything but private. But she didn't want to be on the side of the cats in this cat and mouse game. She wanted to kind of like remain outside of it. And she sees that I agree with her that there is a real need for anonymity technologies for journalists and dissidents and activists and people in repressive regimes. And the fact that, you know, cryptocurrency was was once held up as a way for those people to evade financial surveillance. And the fact that it has turned out to be the opposite of that is in some ways tragic, even though cryptocurrency tracing was also used to take down a bunch of people doing abortion. Doing bad things, things so. yeah. So is that the takeaway, Andy? If I was going to boil the book down to the learning point, it's that Bitcoin specifically can be traced by law enforcement and governments now. So if you thought that you were anonymous there, you should change your mind because you are absolutely not anonymous. Yeah, if you have to boil it down to one I, one like um, lesson, I guess that that's it. I mean, there are now cryptocurrencies like Monero and Zcash that do things with their blockchains that are designed to foil tracing and work probably pretty well to varying degrees, depending on which one we're talking about. Yeah, but as you said in the book, the adoption rate for those is really small compared to Bitcoin and stuff. So we're not there yet. Right. And there may still be vulnerabilities yep. in those yep. that Chainalysis has figured out. They have a lot of money and smart people to, and a lot of competitors like trying to one-up them and find new ways to trace cryptocurrency. So, you know, that cat and mouse game continues. But I, you know, I appreciate you trying to boil it down to like a, a lesson, but really it's like, it's more like the, it's like once I saw that, that Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency could be traced, you know, it turned out that there, that that created just like, um, an incredible decade long true crime drama, uh, just a crazy story that had never really been told. And, I, you know, I would kind of couldn't believe how much there was to tell. And also just like a lot of really interesting ethical questions about, you know, the role of anonymity in society and, and the role of surveillance. Well, it's good stuff, Andy. And I said at the top of the show that it's the best cybercrime book I've read in a long time. So my hat is off to you. Um, you as, I mean, you of all people, I mean, you probably read more of these books than anybody. So I really appreciate that. I'm very grateful for that. And uh, I have to say like Kingpin, Kevin Polson's work is amazing and just an I appreciate any comparison. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're quite welcome. But we're going to have to leave it there, Andy. That's Andy Greenberg. He's the senior writer for Wired and the author of the next great cybercrime book. So, Andy, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks as always, Rick. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Andy Greenberg for coming on the show to talk about his book. And if you haven't read Sandworm yet, stop what you're doing, don't pass go, and get it done. Like I said before... It's a cybersecurity canon Hall of Fame book, but more specifically, with all the activity going on in Ukraine today, Sandworm is especially relevant. And then go straight out to read Tracers in the Dark. It's fantastic. And that's a wrap, not only for this show, but for the complete CSO Perspective season, season 11, and for the entire year of 2022. What a year! As we move into the holiday season, enjoy your downtime. I know I'm going to. We are just about ready here at the Howard House. All the decorations are up, both inside and outside, following the Howard motto of more is always better. And as you see your neighbors and your relatives this season, remember to be kind. Yes, even with Uncle Kevin and his crazy conspiracy stories. We still love him, even with all that. 
And if you're having trouble rising to the holiday spirit, just remember these immortal words from Dr. Seuss and how the Grinch stole Christmas. Welcome, Christmas. Bring your cheer. Cheer to all who's far and near. Christmas Day is in our grasp, so long as we have hands to clasp. Christmas Day will always be just as long as we have we. Welcome Christmas while we stand, heart to heart and hand in hand. The CyberWire CSO Perspective is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I'm Rick Howard. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in the new year. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO PRO to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire.